Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. Thank you so much for tuning in this morning. Well, last week we talked about the Trinity, which is a concept that is unique to Christianity. Today we're going to go on from there and talk a little bit about the deity of Christ. But before we get into the deity of Christ, I thought it would be appropriate to recap a little bit from last week in case you missed the show. If you did miss the show, you'll be able to get it at godsolutionshow.com. Again, that's godsolutionshow.com. And I hope that you'll get a lot out of the show from last week on the Trinity. Some of the verses that we're going to share today concerning the deity of Christ are ones that you would have heard in that section of the show on the Trinity last week. So there will be a little bit this week that you already heard last week, but for the most part, it's all going to be very new, and I hope that it's extremely encouraging to you, especially if you're someone that has had questions or doubts about the deity of Christ, whether or not you're a believer. I know that what you hear today will help you understand the biblical reality that Jesus is God. Now, as we delve into this issue, like I said last week, this is more theology than apologetics. And again, in case you're not familiar with these terms, theology is the study of God, while apologetics is the art of defending the Christian faith or giving a response to anyone that asks about the Christian faith. The word apologia in the Greek actually means to give a response. So it's not apologizing for something, but it's giving a defense of the Christian faith. So this show typically is an apologetical show where we give a defense of the Christian faith. We do that by looking at the science. We do that by looking at the history, the philosophy, all these different fields of knowledge. And I believe from any of these different fields, whether it's logic, whether it's science, whether it's history and archaeology, or any of these different types of fields, we can show that Christianity is valid. Well, today we're kind of taking a different route. We're not trying to show the validity of Christianity, but we are taking Scripture and looking at what Scripture says about God. So we're looking at the Bible. Again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll hear a whole lot from the Bible today. I hope that is something that is exciting for you. I hope you get a lot out of it. And I know every time I read the Bible, I get a ton out of it. So I'm excited to share God's word with you on the air today. So again, a little bit more of a theological show than an apologetical show today, but it'll be exciting nonetheless. And it'll definitely clear up some ambiguity about the Christian doctrine of the deity of Christ. So recapping a little bit from last week, we talked about the Trinity. Again, this concept is unique to Christianity. And the Trinity boils down to the truth that there is one God existing in three persons, yet that one God is one essence and one being in three persons. It's kind of hard to understand. Some would say, oh, that's a contradiction. That's not the case. If we said there were three gods in one God, that would be a contradiction. But saying there are three persons in one essence or in one being is not a contradiction whatsoever. It's definitely hard to wrap our mind around, but it's not a contradiction. Some illustrations that I shared last week and others that I didn't share make this concept a little bit easier to understand. I'm not going to get into all of them. I'm just recapping a bit. The one that I really focused on last week was three-dimensional space. Again, three-dimensional space is one essence, yet it has three distinct and mutually necessary components, length, width, and height. 
If any of those were missing, space would cease to be space. Together, the three make up one entity, space, the single context in which we and all of creation exists. If we took away any of those mutually necessary components, we would not have the one essence that we all need to survive in. And so we realize that those three parts are necessary for the one whole to exist. It's the same thing with the Trinity. I mentioned last week how God's entire nature is wrapped up in the Trinity. For example, Scripture says in 1 John 4.16 that God is love. And I explained last week how God could not be love if he did not exist in three persons, or at least in a plurality of persons, because he would not be able to be love in absence of his creation. But since we know that God exists in a trinity, he can be love in and of himself, regardless of his creation. He does not need us to be himself love. Okay, we talked about bad arguments against the trinity. A few of those, again, that it's a contradiction. We realize that it's not. We heard last week that some people would say the term is not used in Scripture, so it's not scriptural. I shared how that's not the case. The Bible itself is a term that's not used in Scripture, but we all know that it is something that Scripture affirms, God's Word. So just the fact that the term Trinity isn't used in Scripture does not mean that it's not a biblical reality. We see all through Scripture that it is a biblical reality. So that brings us to the evidence for Jesus' deity we realize that the Bible says that Jesus was God in human flesh, and I'll share that verse and others today, and that he came and lived and walked and dwelt among us as God in human flesh. That's quite the claim, and it's hard to swallow for a lot of people. A lot of people say, oh, I really like Jesus. In fact, we do surveys every year, and Jesus's favorability rating, if you will, is higher than it's ever been. People have an extremely high view of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, most of those people know very little about who he is, and many of them do not realize that he himself claimed equality with God and was, in reality, God in human flesh walking on this planet. Now, Jesus is the most maligned of the Trinity. If you ask most people what they think of the Father, I've heard very few that would say that the Father is not God. Very few would claim such nonsense. And most people realize from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. Just like you have a spirit, God is, by his very nature, a spirit. And we shared that very reference last week. And so I've heard very few people trying to argue against the deity of the Holy Spirit. The Jehovah's Witnesses would argue against the deity of the Holy Spirit, and they're wrong in that. But very few do. Most realize that the Holy Spirit is God. But when we get to Jesus, we see that so many people have a problem with the deity of Christ, and they are adamantly opposed to the concept of God being in human form, God being among us as a human being. They don't understand the reality that God could become a man, that he could be both man and God at the same time. It is definitely a hard concept to understand. It even seems a bit crazy. And there's obviously no other religion or worldview that gives such an incredible picture of God that he would come and live among his people, whom he loves, taking on their nature and their limitations in order to relate to them on their level. It's quite the picture of God's love for us. And that is what the Bible teaches. So today I'm going to go into the evidence for Jesus' deity 
And as we begin discussing the evidence for Jesus' deity, I wanted to start with a little bit of what people think. Like I said, he is the most maligned person of the Trinity. So throughout history, there have been movements that have tried to deny the deity of Christ. Take, for example, Arianism or various cults that have arisen to try and deny the deity of Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses think he's just an angel. They do not think he's God at all. The Mormons think he's literally the brother of Satan. Now, Mormons would deny that, but their own texts say that very thing. They believe that he's nothing more than a spirit child of God the Father, as is Satan, and that the two are brothers by nature. Modern academia as well would deny the deity of Christ. For example, Bart Ehrman would say, Jesus never claimed to be God. I'll get to that as we close out the show with C.S. Lewis's Trilemma. Critics try to assert that early Christianity cherry-picked which books would be included as scripture and randomly voted on Christ's deity and so forth. That's nonsense. It's revisionist history. It's not looking at the data and following the evidence where it leads. Here's a fictional example from Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. This is the account where Teabing is explaining to Sophie about Nicaea. And he says, again, this is a quote from Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. At this gathering, talking about Nicaea, Teabing said, many aspects of Christianity were debated and voted upon. The date of Easter, the role of the bishops, the administration of the sacraments, and of course, the divinity of Jesus. I don't follow his divinity. My dear Teaving declared, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. She replied, not the son of God? Right, Teaving said. Jesus' establishment as the son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the council of Nicaea. Hold on, you're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? A relatively close vote at that, Teabing said. So Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code says Jesus' deity was the result of a very close vote. Well, that's not quite the true story. Nicaea included around 300 church leaders that met to address some of these concerns because cults were arising like the Arians trying to say that Jesus was not God. And so they didn't set out to claim that Jesus was God and establish that for the first time, they set out to refute those that were disagreeing with that truth that had been held all along. And as far as that vote that Dan Brown says was a relatively close vote, out of the 300, only two voted against Christ's deity. So 99 plus percent voted that yes, Jesus is God, and all those trying to refute that are wrong. And so Dan Brown's fiction was very fictional. It was not a close vote at all. Yet somehow in popular concept, this gets ingrained as reality, that it wasn't really the case and that they just established for the first time that Jesus was God. That is not the case. So let's look at what the Bible tells us about the deity of Christ. And we're going to look at three lines of evidence today. We're going to look first at shared roles, titles, and actions that both God and Jesus share, again, shared roles, titles, and actions. We're also going to look at explicit scriptural evidence for the deity of Christ, verses that clearly say Jesus is God and can leave no question mark whatsoever. And we'll close with some implicit scriptural evidence, 
or scriptural evidence that implies that Jesus is God. And the three lines together, I think, make a solid case that Jesus is God. So what about the shared roles, titles, and actions that are shared by both Jesus and God the Father? Well, let's start with the obvious one, creator. Genesis 1.1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. Pretty plain, pretty simple. First verse in the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, Colossians 1, 15 through 18 in the New Testament says that Jesus created every created thing. So we see in Scripture that God created the heavens and the earth, and we see in Scripture that Jesus created every created thing. You make the deduction. They both are creator because they both are one and the same God. They're both God. And when I say one and the same God, I'm not saying one and the same person. They are distinct and different persons, but they together are God along with the Holy Spirit. All right, the Bible tells us that Jesus, and Jesus himself said this, is God of the angels and the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13, 41, we read, out of Jesus' own mouth, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. We read elsewhere, for example, in Luke 12 and 15, that the angels are God's angels, yet Jesus calls them his angels. We also realize that throughout scripture, the kingdom of heaven is God's kingdom. Yet Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven as his kingdom. Again, he is God of the angels and of the kingdom of heaven, as is God the Father. All right, Savior. Titus 3, 4, for example, and other references as well, say that God is Savior, that God is Savior. Well, Titus 3, 4 says that, Two chapters earlier, in 1-4, Paul writes that Jesus is our Savior in the very same book, two chapters away. We realize the truth that Jesus is Savior and God is Savior because Jesus is God. What about authority to forgive sins? In Mark 2-5, Jesus said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Two verses later, the teachers of the law say, Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus says, Booyah! <laughs> I even have the power to raise this man up to prove that I have the authority to forgive sins in line with their statement that only God can forgive sins, showing to them very clearly that he is God. Jesus claimed to be the judge of the world in Matthew 25. This is quite the statement we know from Scripture from all over the Bible. Take Psalm 50, verse 6, for example, that God himself is judge. So God is judge, Jesus is judge. We know from Scripture that only God is worthy of worship, yet we see in Scripture in Matthew 2.11, the Magi worship Jesus. In Matthew 14.33, his disciples worship him. In Matthew 21.9 and John 12.13, the people worship Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. In Matthew 28.9, the women worship the risen Christ. In John 20.28, 20, Thomas tells Jesus, my Lord and my God worshiping him. In none of these instances does Jesus tell any of those people not to worship him. In other words, he received their worship, even though all those in that context knew that worship was reserved for God alone. So God is worthy of worship and Jesus is worthy of worship because Jesus is God. Jesus claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He said that of himself in Luke 6, 5. We know that right in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 
that God himself establishes the Sabbath, and Jesus has the audacity to call himself the Lord of the Sabbath, making the clear reference to deity. Jesus spoke with his own authority. He often said, you've heard it said, but I tell you, claiming his own authority and speaking the truth. Everyone hearing that would have recognized immediately that he was claiming to have authority over what was true, the authority that only God holds. Okay, one other one that I think is worth mentioning here, and there are obviously many other shared roles, titles, and actions, but this is awesome. Philippians 2, 6 through 11 says that every knee will bow to Jesus. We read in Isaiah 45, 23, that every knee will bow to God, both deserving of our worship, both being who every knee will bow to, because Jesus is God. All right, those were a lot of shared roles, actions, and titles that both Jesus and God the Father share, showing without doubt that Jesus is God. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. Thanks so much for listening. We're talking this morning about the deity of Christ. We've just talked about the shared roles, titles, and actions that both Jesus and Father God share, showing that Jesus is God. Now we're going to look at some of the explicit scriptural references that attribute deity to Jesus. Again, I shared some of these last week, and I'm glad to share them again this week. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. We read in Mark 1 and Luke 3 that this was prophetic of John the Baptist making the way straight for Jesus. Obviously, Isaiah said that he would make the way straight for God, for Jehovah God. And we read in the New Testament that this was prophetic of John making the way straight for Jesus. In Jeremiah 23, 6, we read that in his days, Judah will be saved. This is talking about the Messiah. And Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Jesus is called our righteousness. God is called our righteousness. Jesus is called our righteousness. In Zechariah 11.13, we read, And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Again, this is prophetic of Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then throwing them into the house of the Lord, exactly according to the prophecy. But we see the prophecy says that this would happen because this is the price that they valued God with. And we read in the New Testament that this is the price that they valued Jesus with. In Zechariah 12.10, it says, God says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one whom they've pierced. Who did they pierce? Jesus on the cross. Yet God says prophetically, they will look on me, God, whom they've pierced and crucified. Obviously, Jesus was God in human flesh who was pierced for our transgressions. Matthew 1.23, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, literally the New Testament writer here, Matthew, saying Jesus is God with us. John 1.1 1, 1 says that Jesus is God, point blank. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 tells us that the Word is Jesus. 
Jesus often referred to God the Father as Father, and the Jews recognized this description of God as his Father as making himself equal with God. We read that in John 5.18. So Jesus saw himself as equal with God. In John 8.58-59, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am, using the Old Testament name for God, I am. And of course, they knew exactly what he was saying there because they tried to kill him for blasphemy right after he said that. So he was attributing deity to himself very explicitly there. In John 14, 7 through 9, Jesus said, If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Pretty clear. A few chapters later in 20, verse 28, and I mentioned this a minute ago, Thomas says to Jesus, My Lord and my God. And Jesus does not correct him, but he receives that as praise. In Acts 20, 28, we read, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought, God bought, with his own blood. We know that Jesus bought the church with his own blood, and we read in Acts 20 that God bought the church with his own blood. In Philippians 2, 6 through 11, I mentioned it a minute ago, but we read, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, that's verse 5, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God the Father. Again, who being in very nature God, humbled himself and became a man. Colossians 2.9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All of God lives in Jesus in bodily form. In Titus 2.13, we read that Jesus is our great God and Savior. Pretty clear. Hebrews 1, 3, 8, and 10 all refer to Jesus as God. Very explicit references, and there are others that refer to Jesus as God. Now, that's all fine, but there are also implicit references to Jesus as God in Scripture. And one that is so clear that I could hardly believe that anyone could miss it is the New Testament usage of the Greek word kurios. The Greek word used for Lord is kurios. This is the word the Greek-speaking Jews would have seen translated for Yahweh in the Septuagint Greek translations of the Old Testament. Wherever Yahweh was used in the Old Testament, the Greek word in the Greek translation was kurios for Yahweh. Well, we get to the New Testament and we realize that the New Testament writers, when they quoted the Old Testament used that very word, kudios, for Yahweh. For example, Romans 4.8 is a quotation of Psalm 32.2. Psalm 32.2 says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord Yahweh does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Well, in Romans 4.8 we read, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord, kudios, will never count against him. So the New Testament writer is using the word kudios to translate the Old Testament word Yahweh, which was the name of God. Now, we also realize that there are numerous instances of the New Testament writers translating those same quotations, including God's name as Yahweh, and they use the word kudios, but then they turn right around and they use that same Greek word kudios hundreds of times to refer to Jesus. This is quite amazing. And sometimes they even quote the Old Testament references containing the name of God as Yahweh and directly attribute those very Old Testament passages to Jesus. 
So, for example, Acts 2, 20 through 21, and Romans 10, 13, quote Joel 2, 31 through 32, using the word Yahweh, and they reference that to Jesus, as does 1 Peter 3, 15, quoting Isaiah 8, 13. We also see these same writers applying that same term, kurios, again, used to translate the Old Testament Yahweh, hundreds of times referring to Jesus with that same word. It is extremely clear from Scripture, from this way that they use the word Lord in the Greek, that the New Testament writers saw Jesus as synonymous with Yahweh God in the Old Testament. And we don't just see this once or twice. We see this hundreds of times in the New Testament. One example of that is Romans 10.9. So I just explained to you how in Romans 4.8, Paul quotes the Old Testament, Psalm 32.2, Yahweh, and he quotes that in Romans 4.8 as kurios Lord. And just a few chapters later, he uses that same term Lord, like I've just said, to refer to Jesus, saying, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, Paul is telling us here that recognizing the deity of Christ is necessary for salvation. There wasn't a first century Greek-speaking Christian who wouldn't have realized that the word Lord was synonymous with Yahweh God. And it's important, as we read in Romans 10.9, for salvation for someone to agree that Jesus is God, God in human flesh. This has been accepted Christian doctrine for the entire history of the church. It goes contrary to Dan Brown's fiction, and it goes right against the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and many cults throughout history that would argue against the deity of Christ. So recapping, we see in the Bible that there are shared roles and titles and actions for both God the Father and Jesus. They're both creator, they're both savior, they're both judge, they both forgive sins, etc., etc., etc. We see explicit scriptural evidence for the deity of Christ, my Lord and God, for example. We see in John 1, 1, again, that Jesus is God. So many clear, explicit references in scripture to the deity of Christ. And finally, we see implicit scriptural evidence, hundreds of of times where Jesus is referred to as Lord, while the same writers use that term to translate the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh. So we see very clearly that the New Testament writers knew and wrote confidently that Jesus was God. So again, shared roles, titles, and actions for both God the Father and Jesus, explicit scriptural evidence clearly stating that Jesus is God, and implicit scriptural evidence where the same title is used by the New Testament writers for both God and Jesus. Incredible. This all boils down into C.S. Lewis's trilemma. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord and God. See, Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father, and he claimed to be the only way, truth, and life. If he said those things and knew that he was not Lord and God, then he was a liar. If he said those things and wasn't that, but thought he was, he was a lunatic. But if he said those things and wasn't a liar or a lunatic, and we can conclude from history that he had a greater impact than anybody that's ever lived and he was no liar, no lunatic, then the only other option is that he was who he said he was, Lord and God. His disciples recognized that. All the New Testament writers recognized that. And millennia of Christians have recognized that. And that brings me to the reality today that even though some of today's scholars would say Jesus never said that, 
they're wrong. Go to GodSolutionShow.com and look for our interviews with Dr. Mike Lacona or Ben Witherington, who both address that issue. The reality is that Jesus either is liar, lunatic, or Lord, and I hope that you'd come to him today realizing that he is who he said he is, Lord, God, and Savior. If you're ready to put your faith in him, claiming him as Lord and God and Savior, you can do that today through prayer, saying, Jesus, I need you. Please come into my life and be my Savior and my Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and for rising from that grave to give me new life. I hope that you take the next step and visit a local church this morning. Go to GodSolutionShow.com to see a list of churches and times and places that they meet. I would also like to invite you to connect this week. We'll be meeting at Tuesday at Noble 125 at 6 p.m. So Tuesday, Noble 125 at 6 p.m. Get all of our previous shows at GodSolutionShow.com. And please let us know what you think. I appreciate your comments and questions. Finally, remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. I've got a stronger, got you.